So we're in the middle of kind of talking about our philosophy of ministry, and one of the big parts of our philosophy of ministry is that we're worshiping community. Under that, we're talking about some of the practices, the, um, the ways in which we want to inhabit our life together. And we've done things like scripture, um, and we're now in the middle of worship, like us worshiping together on a Sunday, which is weird because many of you experience the worship on a Sunday, some of you not at all, it's totally fine, but we don't really talk about what we do. And so for the last few weeks, I've been trying to talk about what we do. And we have the C's um, as a way of talking about that, the practicing of worship. And those C's, actually there's a, there's a handout in the back if you want it, um, are things like the call, or being called by God, being cleansed by God, being consecrated by God, it's a funny word, then communing with God, and then commissioned or sent forth by God. And so last week we started on consecration, and I decided to do two weeks on this one. I've only done one for the other one. Um, but consecration, you remember, has kind of two ideas. One is that it is us being set apart definitely, but also progressively, that we start to grow slowly, beautifully, and steadily, that God, by his kindness and his mercy, transforms us, consecrate us. Consecrate just means to make holy, to sanctify, uh, to holify us, if you will. He changes us and transforms us by his kindness. And what we believe is that in the 30 minutes, and it's in your bulletin where the consecration part is, is that these vows and baptisms, this membership stuff, the reading of the word and the preaching of the word consecrates us. It actually changes us. It shapes us over time. It's a spigot of living water from which we drink every week. It's both definitive, and he makes us right with him. It's also progressive. It changes us over time. That's what we think about when we think about these things set apart for our good and God's good purposes in the world. We have several passages today that we're going through. I actually misprinted one of them. Sorry about that but I'll still read it to you. Um, and since for about 2,000 years you never got on a screen or a bulletin, I think we're going to be okay. So what I want to say in the consecration, we spent a lot of time last week on how the Lord reorders our lives together and he reorients it towards or reorders it towards redemption. Today I want to talk about how in some ways that that works. And that works um, by a hard word for us sometimes within consecration, and that is, for my first point, it corrects us. Now, sometimes you think of correction, and you, all you can see is red markers on papers. By the way, now they change the green and other colors, just so it wasn't so, you know, every time. You know, mine would get really red with lots of little marks. <clears throat> the content was great, but the, mental, the other errors weren't a problem. <clears throat> what Timothy's saying when he says, until I come, 1 Timothy 4.13 now, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. This is Paul, an older pastor, talking to a younger pastor. And in 2 Timothy, he had to write two letters, um, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, kind of means improve. Rebuke, which means you might have to talk somebody 
pretty toughly, and exhort general teaching with complete patience and teaching. The, the Bible's chock full of helping us learn towards wisdom. The Bible does teach morality. The Bible does teach how we think about the world, the people in it, ourselves, God, all that stuff, how we are supposed to interact with our neighbors. It's a very practical book. But in so doing, when Paul's talking to Timothy here, he's talking about this correction. It corrects our view of him. Here's the deal. You can't get too far along the scripture, in the scriptures, when you're not corrected. I don't care who you are. If you think God is distant and passive, you will be corrected. If you think God is a big teddy bear in the sky or a mean ogre in the sky, you will be corrected. If you think he doesn't care about your body, but just your mind, you will be corrected. If you don't think you have to love your enemies, you will be corrected. If you think more money means more happiness, you will be corrected. If you think no money or resources, still happiness, you will be corrected in that too. If you think you can work hard enough to earn God's love, you will be corrected. That's why we preach the word in season and out of season. Because first, there's a lot of word to be preached. And second, we're apt to forget. Correcting, improving, sometimes rebuking. It is what we, what's hot right now is growth mindset. It really is. Correction is important. The question is whether it's a correction born of shame or born of love. If you make it through an entire year in a church of sermons and you haven't got your feathers ruffled, you ain't listening. You are supposed to get mad and frustrated and confused. That, that you're supposed to say that don't sound right. Hat, hat tip to two elders in our church who have a podcast called that. Or in the biblical term, cut to the heart. If you're listening well. Y'all, Jesus says some stuff. It's hard. I always tell people who are interested in the faith, don't get into this if you're faint of heart. He literally, he wasn't kidding when he said, love your enemies. The, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Unless you come to me like a child, you have no place in my kingdom. Jesus doesn't play around with stuff like that. Sometimes we imagine Jesus and what he's, how he's revealed in the scriptures as if he weren't killed as a radical. Sermons are supposed to trouble us sometimes. And so our job is to embrace the correction, embrace the change. It is transforming us, and it's transforming us by his present power in the consecration part of a worship service and his grace. 
we're not supposed to get through this without being convicted, cut to the heart of some sinful or slothful ways. We're not supposed to get through the, the terrors of this world without receiving this comfort from his word. Yes, we're going to have to repent to him and to one another. And yes, we're going to have to comfort by his grace one another. And so we embrace it. One to another. It's this transformation that is super important. But I want you to read what the elder pastor Paul at this point says to Timothy. He says, I want you to do all that with complete patience. There is a manner of doing that, which is tied to the content of what he's doing, that says, stay in there with people. Stay in there with yourselves. Stay stay in there. That's what Jesus is doing when he's talking to two guys. It's a seven-mile walk. That's a long sermon, y'all. When he finished preaching which is what Paul is hoping for when Timothy finishes preaching, is did our hearts not burn within us as he talked to us on the road, as he opened the scriptures to us? Like sometimes when you hear it's good for preach, it's good for exhortation and rebuke and um, reprove, you you automatically kind of get in, or I have automatically gotten into this place where I conjure up Getting the data right, the right code of ethics, the right take on the morality that is called for, the right vision of Jesus. The reading and preaching of Scripture is not first about getting the data or your worldview right. It's about encountering God himself who is speaking to us in the moment. Along the road, if you will, for seven miles. So don't complain about how long sermons go. Just kidding. You could read the Bible like it's a back of the baseball card. You will get all the stats everywhere they played. But that doesn't mean you know Albert Pujols. I don't know why I picked Albert Pujols, mostly because I'm not a baseball fan and I lived in St. Louis for a while, so that's probably it. The best way to understand Albert Pujols with a baseball card is for him to be next to you and you talk through it together. That's what happens in the consecration part of worship service. He's here. If you're listening to a sermon as if God isn't there, it's not listening to a sermon. I'm thinking of Christians most on this one. For you who don't believe yet, totally fine, normal. There's no power in it. You may get a little smarter, but you're likely going to get a lot more arrogant. The Bible is not God. (laughs) I'm saying this in a Presbyterian church, just in case you're wondering. The Bible is God's word, which just means how he communicates to us. And the true word of God is Jesus. Thank you very much. Sunday school answer, proper answer on that. And by the power of the Spirit, in an event like this, God communicates to us about the mercy of Jesus 
that we meet him there. We actually participate in a conversation with God. That's what's happening. I know that's not what typically we expect. We just want to hear a good TED talk. But that's not actually what's happening here. You know, the critique of the modern church is that it's a Coldplay concert with a good TED talk. We're not doing that. So the correction that's happening may be happening now. It's not to perfect your worldview first. It will, per- protect, it will perfect your worldview, not perfect. It'll get it better. It's not even first about improving your theology, though that'll get better too. It's about encountering the living God who's actually talking to you through his word and through jacked up sinners like me. I don't, he could have chose a different way. He didn't. That's on him. So we go back again and again, in season and out of season, over and over again, every single Sunday. As preachers like to say, Sundays return with frightening regularity. What do you expect in this space? My guess is we all expect too too little, including the preacher. That he would speak to you, not just about you, not just about him, but as him, as himself. Embrace the correction, embrace the transformation. But if you don't know that he's embracing you in it, you're missing it. And what do you do if you're missing his embrace in the middle of it? Let him correct you. That's what he does. He's going to correct you right back into his embrace as he speaks to you. I have this image that I want to be true, is that in a sermon, in a reading of the word, that we're like these chirping chicks with our mouths wide open, waiting for Mama Bird to bring some food so he can grow us so that we can fly. And he's right there with us. Yes, the word is filled with stuff to learn, to grow. It is in your mind and your body and your soul and every other place. You you love him with your will, too, and your mind. And that stuff will ruffle your feathers, but it is so that you can soar through the sky. Even the dangerous skies we live in. Back to the Sunday morning. What else is happening? Consecration in the season is about correction or in this space. But that concentration has a centrality to it. It has a focus to it all. And so we embrace the correction that is coming, but it is toward the end of its central purpose. And the centrality of all the scriptures as we read on the road to Emmaus, as we hear Paul talking um, to Timothy over and over again, as we hear from Ephesians that says, he came to preach peace to those who are far and near. What we realize is, is that the main or the centrality of scripture, of teaching, of the consecration that 
happens in a worship service is grace through Jesus. God's grace through Jesus. That's it. It's not that's it, period. It's that it, exclamation part with 66 books to talk, follow it, to talk about it. But that's it. Grace through Jesus. If you go right before the Ephesians passage I read to the kids, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, and he's speaking about non-Jews at that point, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, again, in the room, he himself is our peace. Not the idea of him, not the words about him. He himself is our peace. Who has made us both one, these separate hated groups, one, has broken down the wall of hostility. And he came and he preached peace to who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's about as Trinitarian as you can get. The spirit is moving and alive. And he's making peace with one another and with himself having access to the Father that sent him and loved him and loved us. That's what happens on a Sunday morning. That's the gospel, y'all. The Father sent the Son to bring grace through Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit activates it in us. We can be in right relationship with God and one another, Jesus is that long-awaited Messiah who took on our sins so we may not take it on ourselves. His blood shed, his body broken. It cleanses us. It gives us new life with him and one another. He brings peace to us that shouldn't be friends. His unmerited kindness and favor. And now we live by this grace, a grace that both forgave us and forgives us of all our sin, past, present, and future, and a grace that fuels us to try again, to keep going, to keep moving amid all the horror in this world. Fuel for the long, messy process of becoming more like him. And he uses the consecration space in a worship service to do the bulk of that work. Preachers stand up pleading, appealing to anyone who will listen that Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is the Lord of the grace that he is bringing into the world. And he's calling wanderers and fools and, and, and weaklings like you and me, people beat up by their own sin and the sins of others. He's calling us to come in, and then he's shaping us both near and far into the recreation of what our original creation intent was, which bear the image of God in the full of love and justice to be made new. And this is true for you who have followed Jesus for a while and you who have not. There's no difference in the power. There's no difference in the power we need. There's no difference in our proneness to wander. To use the Timothy passage, there's no difference in the the folly of the myths that we believe. There's no difference in our desperate need of grace. There's no difference in the fact that none of us can heal ourselves. 
And yet, the grace is offered. It's an ancient tradition in Israel and still to this day is before the reading of the Torah, especially at a bat mitzvah or a bar mitzvah, there's honey that you taste. So that the sweetness of God's kindness to you in the reading of his word and the preaching of it will be physically able for you, able for you to taste and see that the Lord is good. So I split this sermon. This is the second half. Aren't you glad I split it, you two? Because I want to go back to the road to Emmaus. Again, definitely the Mount Rushmore of passages on the Mount Rushmore passages until I figure out another one to put up there. He's just walking with two guys who have all the facts about the events right. They are accurate. They just need God to show them what's really going on. They needed the reality of the events to be interpreted into the mission and grace of who Jesus is in the world. So Jesus walks with them. I don't know how long seven miles takes in the ancient Near East. That's a long sermon. It says that he did a walk through the Old Testament and talked to them about what that was. They're walking around in despair because no there's no way the narrative of what happened makes sense in their world. And Jesus shows up in the middle of it and tells them what's really going on. Sins forgiven, relationships restored, the earth bountiful, the flourishing of all the things that have been broken, every tear wiped from the eye. Well, that's what he's talking about. Now, I have no idea. It's one of my top five things to ask Jesus when he gets it. Can you tell me, can you preach that sermon back? Because I want to hear that sermon. But I do, in the liberty of a sanctified imagination, have ideas about what it would be like. With his grace, the center of the story. And I've heard other preachers do this, but I figured I needed to do it on my own to figure out how I see the scriptures in this and how the Lord's taught me over the years. And so I only have this for you. That as you come to the scriptures, as you go through the monotony of every Sunday hearing the scriptures, that somehow Jesus would look more beautiful to you as you walk through. And somehow you would have more hope that he's actually there with you. As you journey in despair or hope or glory or whatever it is. Because my imagination has him going, oh, Genesis. Cleopas and his buddy. Buddy didn't get named in this picture. That's kind of a bummer. So Cleopas and Guy. Cleopas and plus one. And now think of him teaching with complete patience. Genesis. Guys, I am the promised offspring of Eve who crushes the serpent's head. I am the ram caught in the thicket that is the atonement for Abraham's son. Exodus, I'm the Passover lamb whose blood becomes your rescue. Leviticus, I am the beautiful law and the great high priest who both brings and then becomes the sacrifice. 
In Numbers, I am the water from the rock, the brazen symbol that would rescue for you from the fiery serpent. In Deuteronomy, I know we all love Moses, but Moses in Deuteronomy 18 said, there's a prophet greater than me coming. That's me. Joshua, I'm the the commander of the Lord's army. And Judges, I'm the deliverer who rescues you in spite of your rebellion. And Ruth, I am the keeper of the royal line, the kinsman redeemer who is Boaz. And Samuels, I am prophet, priest, and king. And kings, I'm the true and eternal temple whose throne will bring justice and love to the world. And Chronicles, I am the I am David's great David's greater son. In Ezra and Nehemiah, I am the freedom of God and the builder of broken walls. In Esther, I am protector. In Job, I am the day spring from on high and your source in every suffering. In Psalms, I'm the son of God, the word, the Lord. You go on for Psalms for a long time. In Proverbs, I'm the wisdom of God. In Ecclesiastes, I'm the one who brings meaning to this meaningless life. In Song of Solomon, I am your lover, your bridegroom. And as Isaiah, you go on all day on this one too. I'm the suffering servant, I'm the wonderful counselor, I'm the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. In Jeremiah, I'm the prophet who receives the father's judgment in his body and yet is the promise of the new covenant. In Lamentations, I bear your tears. In Ezekiel, I'm the son of man. In Daniel, I'm the son of man and the son of God and in the furnace. In Hosea, I'm the faithful husband to an adulterous people. In Joel, I'm the one who pours out his spirit on all people in coming on the great day of the Lord. In Amos, I'm the righteous judge and restorer of all nations, governments, and peoples. In Obadiah, I'm the mighty judge and the one who's come to save you from your enemies. And Jonah, I bring grace to your enemies, and you're going to get over it. And Micah, I'm the shepherd from Bethlehem. And Nahum, I'm the comfort and deliverer of God's oppressed. And Habakkuk, I'm the intercession, the savior of the distressed. And Zephaniah, I'm the restorer of the remnant on the day of the Lord. And Haggai, I'm the glory that fills the house of the Lord and the temple that will be rebuilt on the third day. Zechariah and the king riding on a donkey and determined to do good among his people. And in Malachi, I'm the messenger of the covenant who will be great among the nations. So you have to stop there because the New Testament wasn't written yet. Would it be true that we would receive the patient correction of God and that we would center on the most beautiful thing that all scripture teaches. The grace of God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us. Something we do most every week. But we want to be in it to win it with you. Let us experience your embrace and let us embrace the correction you have. For your glory, our good. And the fact that you consecrate us in this time. We pray in your name. Amen.